0: It's a delight to be back with you again. You were very loving and kind to us last time we were here, and this time you outdid yourself. You've won the hearts of my children with your donuts in the fellowship hall. (laughs) We're going to be looking at Hebrews this morning. The scripture reading will be from Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be looking at faith. I prayed for your congregation since uh, during the time you've been looking for a pastor. And one of the dynamics of the Christian life and of a congregation is this life of faith. And I hope that as we look at this this morning, you'll not only be encouraged in your own heart, in your own journey, but in the journey that's your own as a congregation to be patient with the Lord. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 6 that's in your bulletin, and then verses 1 and 2. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken... He was commended as having pleased God and without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Then verse 12, I mean, chapter 12, verse one, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning asking that you will bless the reading of your word, and that you would send your spirit to open our hearts and our minds so that we might be encouraged along this journey of faith. I pray that you will not only open our hearts and minds to the word of your truth, but I pray that your spirit would come to the whole congregation as a community and encourage them on the journey that they are on as a church. We ask this in Christ's name, amen faith is a word that gets thrown around a lot in our churches. Do you have faith in Jesus? Have you ever believed? Are you struggling with your faith? I think it would be fascinating to reflect on all the different ways we use the word faith or belief. Growing up as a child in the Christian church, I can honestly say in my experience, I don't remember a point at which I didn't believe in Jesus in some way. Now, I grew up in a church that didn't highlight that as much as Presbyterians do with their sense of the covenantal tradition, and it took me several years to come to the point to believe that I actually did believe, even though I didn't have some crisis experience the way other people sometimes do. But even as a child, you have some, if you grow up in the church, you have some notion of belief in Christ, some notion of some kind of faith. Every child here who believes in Jesus has a beginning point of faith or belief. It is certainly a different point of uh, faith than the f- pagans have, who the, scripture, the Scriptures describe as worshiping false idols and having faith in themselves in many cases. In the book of Habakkuk, the Babylonians are described as having faith in the military might of their nation. That's called idolatry in the Old Testament. But that faith, however it starts, needs to be formed. It needs to grow. It needs to mature. And that is what the journey of faith in the Christian life is all about. I would tell you that one of the greatest breakthroughs in my own personal faith came as a teenager when I realized that faith and repentance were not like a light switch that got switched on and off. In other words, I had this implicit notion in my head That once you had faith, you were in and you were ready to go, and everything was going to be okay. And then when you run into a problem, you think, well, maybe I don't really believe. I'm not exactly sure how that language slipped into our churches, but that's not the way faith is described in Scripture. Faith is a dynamic, pulsating life, it sometimes is very powerful and strong and confident, and sometimes it wavers. And struggles. Faith is more dynamic and moving and changing and growing. It would be more accurate to describe faith not as a light switch that goes on and off, but as a dimmer that gets brighter at times and then less so. I remember as a teenager sitting in a church and listening to a preacher describe justification that Christ's righteousness was mine. And I stand righteous in him. And it was mind-blowing for me because all of my fears of my sins and my failures, all those things that I was wrestling with at that time were brought to the cross. And in my mind, I understood at that point that I received Jesus' righteousness. As the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul says, not in part, but the whole. All of your sins are nailed to the cross and you bear them no more. And then after that experience the next time I sinned which was very quick after that moment I might say this time I realized it's not about trying to regain some kind of initial moment of faith it is about a journey. It is about a push toward maturity and that's what I want us to look at this morning is faith and maturity and growth. And to look at this we're going to turn to Hebrews Hebrews was written to people of faith who were struggling. In my mind, the particular struggle that they were facing was probably to Jewish Christians who were struggling with the loss of the way they practiced their faith before Jesus came. That's my inclination on some of the language used here. Um, In fact, they once went to the temple, they once sacrificed, they once had rituals and festivals and things that bound them together as a community of faith and they lost some of those things and you might can relate to that as a community Uh, as an outsider who's dropped in twice now I've been most encouraged by the way you've juggled things without a pastor and continue to go but you know when you don't have a pastor in place things change things feel different things are slightly not the same And so in the case of these believers, when they had lost these very tangible, real things in life, the temple and their sacrifices, they were struggling with pressing on. And it certainly seems, based on passages in the book of Hebrews, that these Christians were being persecuted for their faith. The end of Hebrews 10 says, some of them were even in prison. So this group had suffered much because of their faith. So the message in the book of Hebrews is to persevere, to press on in their faith, to fight the good fight, to run the race, to not throw in the towel, to not give up. So there are encouragements in the book of Hebrews that I want to point out to you as we move towards Hebrews 11. But anytime you get encouraging words in scripture, there's a flip side to the coin. You get warnings. Warnings. Warnings for what it looks like if you turn away. And I'm very thankful for the hymn that we just sung that talks about how in your faith and your struggle, Christ holds you. Because that's what the book of Hebrews describes. Nevertheless, you have to press on. So let's look at a few examples as we move towards Hebrews 11. I find that highlighting just a few things as we get to chapter 11 will be helpful. Hebrews 1 starts out with a beautiful portrait picture of Christ, his glory and majesty. And then if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, I'm going to highlight about six scriptures just briefly as we move towards Hebrews 11. And I want you to see these occasional verses that pop up. So chapter 2, verse 1. After describing the glory of Christ, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. There's a warning. After the encouraging picture of the glory and majesty of Christ, there's a warning. Because we will sit here and hear, we will sit in here and listen to everything that's said except the Bible tells us that it doesn't affect every person the same way. Some of you will respond in a way that produces faith. Some of you might be frustrated and bitter right now and think that I'm not exactly saying or dealing with what you're struggling with. Some of you may be in a completely different place. And so when you hear, as Hebrews 2, 1 says, what you've heard, you need to be on guard lest you drift away. You do not need to neglect such a great salvation, verse 3 says. And then chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him. There we have an encouraging word about Jesus. In the midst of your struggle, don't drift away, but instead consider Jesus, consider what He's done for you, and then, by the time you get uh, you get this section in chapter three, verse seven, with it's a quote from the Old Testament about people, the Old Testament uh, saints not entering the rest of God, and then verse twelve says, "Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away." From the living God. Instead, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In the midst of the encouraging word, there is again a warning that we don't get led away, led astray by our unbelieving heart. In times of trouble, in times of confusion, in times of doubt, and all those things happen. We have to continue to trust in Christ. Then chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Again, another warning that we need to press on and then drop down to verse 11 of chapter 4. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Those are powerful words in the midst of your journey. Because we all put on a front, a front. Paul calls it the flesh. And the writer of Hebrews says the word of God in the midst of this journey that you're going on functions in such a way to open your heart and make you naked and exposed before God. But what we do at that moment is we run the other way. And when you go through a trial individually or when you go through a trial as a church, the temptation is to not lean on Christ. It is to figure it out for ourselves with our own resources. And so then let's go to this final uh, passage that I want to point to you, the end of chapter five, moving into chapter six, because you'll notice in these words that there is this emphasis on this long section on maturity and growth. Okay. So chapter five, verse 11 he said a little something about Melchizedek right before this and we'll not get into that for the very reason he says here in verse 11 about this we have much to say and it is hard to explain. That's one of the things people say about the book of Hebrews in, uh, after chapter 6. He says, but I want you to notice why he says it's hard to explain. Since you have become dull of hearing... For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you ought to be moving further along in the faith, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, I think what he's saying here in this passage is the emphasis on wisdom in the Old Testament. This notion that we are not at a point where we can eat solid food, instead we still need milk, is because we are unskilled in the word of righteousness that he says is the powers of discernment to distinguish good from evil, which is what wisdom does. Although God gives us the Ten Commandments, you'll run into all sorts of situations in your life where you have to discern what the right choice is at any given moment. And how do you do that? But by training yourself in the way of righteousness. So he says, chapter six, verse one, therefore let us leave these elementary things behind and press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and the instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So showing you all that is to get us to this point. The book of Hebrews is about pressing on to maturity. The book of Hebrews is about encouraging you to a mature faith. A faith that can stand in the midst of the storm without being tossed here and there. It will certainly have its struggles. It will certainly have its doubts. But a faith that is anchored to something beyond your experience, to something beyond your trial, to something beyond your present moment. And that's where Hebrews 11 comes in. Hebrews 11 gives us an explanation about what this faith looks like. As we get to Hebrews 11, that very last section right before Hebrews 11, Hebrews 10, verse 39 even though there's this description of the suffering and trials that they're going through, and that's the section, the end of Hebrews 10, where it describes these uh, Christians as being in jail, and some Christians have compassion on the ones that are in jail, and they leave the safety of their homes and their prayer meetings to go visit the person in jail. And Hebrews 10 says they endured the destruction of their property when they identified with these other people in jail. And so... The danger to turn away is an ever present danger because of the suffering they're going through. But he says in verse 39 But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And now, what is faith? Chapter 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction. Of things not seen. Now, the old King James Bible described this, said this was the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. We'll have to pause for just a moment and look at these words because when I used to read these, I'd think, oh, that sounds great. I didn't really know what it meant. What exactly is the description of faith being described here? What, What exactly is this meaning of faith? So, as The wisest practice is just to understand the words. The word assurance in verse 1, the ESV translates it as assurance because it's taking a word and trying to apply it to a personal experience. I'm not convinced assurance is the best word. It comes from a Greek word that has a more objective meaning in the book of Hebrews, a meaning that is We we think of assurance not strong enough as confidence or conviction. Or another meaning of it in the book of Hebrews is nature or reality. I'm more inclined to think that the word assurance should be translated as reality or nature. It's the very word used to describe Jesus. He is the exact nature of. Reality of the way things are, okay? And then the word conviction. The word conviction um, has as a meaning um, witness, evidence, proof. So if I take those two meanings, that the word assurance is about the nature of things, the reality of things. And the word conviction is about proof or witness. Here is how I would read it. Now, faith is the reality of things hoped for, the witness of things not seen. Faith is the reality of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen the witness of things not seen. Now, why would I make that switch and emphasize these particular words? Because I think there's something fundamental about this verse that we often don't get. I think the meaning of this verse is that faith witnesses to the reality of things you don't see. The very essence of faith is to witness to the reality of things you don't see. Now, I'm going to pause right there for just a moment and back up and highlight this aspect of things you don't see. When the Bible begins in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We often read that verse, and some people interpret the verse this way, the heavens, the cosmos, and the earth, this globe. I'm of the opinion... That the meaning of Genesis 1-1 is the same meaning in John 1 and Colossians 1 when John and Paul describe heaven and earth as the visible and invisible realm. If you look at John 1 or Colossians 1, when they use the language heaven and earth, it's visible and invisible. Okay? Now think about it this way. The Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come... Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, we're not praying that things be the same way on earth as they are in the cosmos. We're praying that things be the same way on earth as they are in this realm of the kingdom of God that we can't see. That's what the Lord's Prayer is praying. So, when God created everything, he created everything you see and everything you don't see. Because there's an invisible world that you don't see. But your faith is a witness to that invisible world. That world we can't see. Eventually, John describes it in the book of Revelation as the new heavens and new earth. So now here's what I think Hebrews 11 is saying. Faith is witnessing to the reality of heaven. Your faith witnesses to the reality of this unseen world. Through faith, the reality of God's kingdom, God's invisible world intrudes into this world. Faith is used by God to channel the kingdom into this world so that others see it. So people in the history of salvation, us included, witness to the reality of heaven through faith. I think that's what this chapter is showing us. I think that's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. That your faith is not a witness about the temple. Your faith is not a witness about the sacrifices. Your faith is not a witness about these rituals you do, although all those things were good at the time. Your faith is a witness to this world that you can't see. The people of faith in Hebrews 11 are witnessing to the reality Of another world, a demonstration of the unseen. Through faith, we possess heaven and we show others about heaven. For example, heaven is a place of perfect love. Whatever love we long for in our hearts, in our souls, heaven is the place where that comes from. And we witness to that love by loving others. By loving our neighbors. Heaven is a place of perfect obedience. And we witness to that obedience. By obeying God here now. Heaven is a place of perfect worship. And we witness to that worship. By worshiping God here now. Heaven. This invisible world. Is a place where all things are put to right. And we witness to that. By the way we conduct ourselves now. Your faith. Witnesses to the reality of heaven. This is in the book of Hebrews. If you drop back to chapter 8, and I'm not going to do that, but I'm just going to highlight this. The writer of Hebrews says that when Moses made the tabernacle, God instructed him to make the tabernacle as a copy of a heavenly reality. And so the challenge for us is to see That our faith witnesses to that world. It's always doing that. So as a congregation, in the midst of life without a pastor, your faith is witnessing to a stronger promise as you press on and persevere. So let's look at a few of these examples in Hebrews 11. Verse 2, he says, For by it, by faith, the people of Ode received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And now we move into the particular people. By faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So Abel trusted God in the sacrifice that he was told to offer. And by that faith, he witnesses to another reality. Enoch, verse 5, was taken up so that he should not see death. He was not found because God had taken him. Enoch was that character in the Old Testament who is translated without death, it seems. He was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever who would draw near to God must believe that he exists, that your faith is witnessing to something you don't see, and that he rewards those who seek him. The other side of faith, that as you seek God, there is this glorious reward of joy, and peace in the journey. By faith, Noah, verse 7, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen. Noah, in the story of the flood, hadn't rained like that. Some think it didn't even rain until then, but whatever was the case, everyone mocked him and said, no, this isn't what's going to happen. You've lost your mind. He builds an ark to save his household, and by doing that, he becomes an heir of faith. Noah acted on the basis of what he did not see, but what he believed. Now, Abraham, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out, not knowing where he was going. If we went back and looked at Abraham, Abraham left a very probably profitable situation when he left his homeland. And he goes to live in the land that God promised him, but he lives in that land, verse 9 says, as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob heirs with him of the same promise. He's living in the land God promised, but he doesn't have it because verse 10 says he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose builder and designer is God. Abraham's ultimate goal was not even the plot of land in the Middle East. His ultimate goal was a city that God built. Paul says in Romans 4 that Abraham believed he would inherit the whole world. That's a promise that doesn't come true in his lifetime. It's a promise that he believes in, although he can't see. Same thing with Sarah and the conceiving of a child. Then, verse 13 these all died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in this earth. That was their life of faith. They didn't receive the promise, but they saw it by faith. And their faith witnessed to that reality. Verse 14, For people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If... They have been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return, to go back. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, what kind of country? A heavenly country. A country you can't see right now. Therefore, because of that, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You see how faith works? Faith is this dynamic, pulsating life that witnesses to things you don't see, to the reality of heaven. I'm astounded by this next phrase from Abraham because it goes to Isaac. And although you can't see this as clearly in the Old Testament passage, notice what uh, verse 17 says about Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up to Isaac, who he had received the promises of. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Abraham was going to offer Isaac up back in Genesis, even though Isaac was the promise. How in the world could he do that? Because verse 19 says he considered that God was able to raise him from the dead because he believed in what he couldn't see. Goes on with Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. And each one of these examples demonstrates that their faith witnessed to something that you couldn't see at the time. And it's probably a wise point in my sermon to skip down to verse 32 and just follow what the writer here says. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me, and I think time has failed me, to tell you of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, and on and on the chapter goes. And then we'll wrap it up with verses 39 and 40 as we move to the conclusion. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God have provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What's the better thing that he's given us? Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all these saints who have gone before us, let us lay aside the sin and the weight that entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us at this particular time for you as a church and as an individual. And in the midst of that, by your faith, verse 2 look to Jesus. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. The ESV says founder, it means the same thing. He's the one that brought this about. Now, notice what it says about Jesus. These are the words about Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, what Jesus was able to go through on the cross. Was because his faith looked beyond the cross. Yes, Jesus lived by faith. Not faith in a redeemer, he didn't need that, but he lived by faith in what was coming. And so Hebrews 12 2 says, For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So do not grow weary in bearing your cross because God has a beautiful story for you but the only way to get to that story is through the suffering of the cross because there's something about that dynamic of suffering that turns you from the coal to a diamond and transforms your life if your faith continues to witness to the reality of things you don't see. I pray that would be true of you as an individual following Christ and covenantally as a church seeking to serve the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you will take the words of Scripture that we have seen and how you have shown us the reality of faith in Christ. And you would take what we've seen and send your spirit to strengthen our faith so that we can truly witness to the reality of things that we don't see, so that we can be a true witness for you, for Christ. And that as we live our lives, everything that we do might be to your honor and to your glory. We are certain that this is not possible without your spirit doing a work. And sometimes we're not even aware that your spirit is doing that work. But we believe as we are here today that he's at work through your word, through the sermon, through the worship, through the songs, and through this time of communion. And Father, we pray as we transition to communion That you will allow your spirit to give us comfort and encouragement in the course of our Christian life. And that our faith might be able to witness to the true reality of heaven. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.